0: This morning, let me welcome you. I'm Joe, and whether this is your first time or whether you have been here, as Jim says, longer than I have been alive, um, I'm glad that you're here on Palm Sunday. Uh, This is an exciting day uh, where we celebrate Jesus' ride into Jerusalem, uh, His coronation ceremony. Uh, And we're going to be, we have been as a church in the book of of, uh, Acts on Sunday morning, but we're going to pick up in the book of Luke this week. We're going to divert again. Uh, we'll get back to Acts in about three weeks on the 19th um, after Easter. Um, one other announcement, or actually a couple quick announcements that need to be made before I go any further. One, because of the Messiah and the Passover celebration on Thursday... At, at the end of this service, I would love to have some of you men help us get chairs off to the side so we can set up tables and so forth in here for that event. So stick that in the back of your mind. And then the other thing is on the 19th, just to draw your attention to something in your bulletin, on the 19th, uh, we're going to have the, uh, another presentation opportunity uh, for our uh, capital campaign where we're going to try and do some building improvements. Um, our leadership team, our, our elders, our facilities task force, capital campaign committee, and church health team have already committed about 30% of those costs and pledges, but we'd like to uh, try to raise the remainder so we can do some some other uh, improvements. So if you want to hear about that, um, and if you weren't here last Sunday uh, when we had Cafe Church, um, uh, due to the power being out here... Um, they had an opportunity last week, but on the 19th, you'll want to be here right after church. We'll have some snacks. Is that right? Somebody click, confirm that for me. We're going to have some snacks because uh, you can't have a church meeting with nothing to eat. And, um, and the guys on the Capitol Campaign Committee will explain everything that we're trying to do and why. Um, with that, I want to talk about uh, Jesus here. Uh, draw back into the scriptures and look at uh, Luke chapter 19. Jesus is uh, making an announcement as he comes in on Palm Sunday, or what became known as Palm Sunday to us, coming into Jerusalem and announcing himself as the long awaited Son of David, the one the Old Testament calls the Mashiach, what we bring into, over into English as Messiah or what is translated in the New Testament as Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was to come, the son of David. And Jesus, in coming into Jerusalem in the way that he does, is announcing himself as the Messiah. All the way prior to this, uh, he has told his disciples to keep quiet and to not make a public proclamation that he is indeed the Messiah. But here, he himself is going to direct them to make a public pronouncement I am the one who was to come, I am the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke and wrote. And he's going to make a public announcement about that. And he is, this is in a sense his coronation ceremony. Now, You know, as I was doing my study this last week, I thought, you know, coronation ceremony, that's kind of cool. I'm a a small r Republican and small d Democrat uh, in that I believe that that's generally a better form of government than a monarchy. Uh, So as an American, I'm not really uh, familiar with monarchy too much, but I thought it'd be kind of interesting to research some other coronation type ceremonies. And the most recent one, and probably the one that uh, people on this side of the planet would be familiar with is the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, Her Majesty the Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, right? In 1953, she ascended the throne following her father, uh, George the Seventh to the throne. And uh, when she was... Her title, by the way, you know, the, the short one is Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II sovereign of the, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, okay? The actual full-on title that she has is a half a page long. And the ceremony that describes just how they walk, what are all the elements, you know, we have an order of service we put together for everybody who's going to be up here on this platform, and we hand them each a copy as they, uh, before they we come in here to put this together. But in our order of service is on one side of one page. The order of service for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth runs 25 printed pages. And it includes things like this. A communion service, uh, multiple scripture readings, uh, multiple hymns sung in this great cathedral of of Westminster Abbey uh, there in London. Uh, There includes an anointing where she kneels down and is anointed with oil. Uh, it includes the presentation of the sword of state and a set of spurs, you know, indicating that she is both the judge and leader of the armies. Uh, she gets a golden orb, this kind of golden ball with pearls set into it that's got a cross on top that symbolizes that she is, in a sense, the divine ordained ruler of her realm. Um, She is wrapped in the royal robe, the royal stole, uh, what are called armills. I'm not sure exactly what these are, but some sort of things that go on your arms. She is crowned with St. Edward's crown, which is an impressive deal. Set with diamonds and rubies and pearls. I think it weighs four and a half pounds, and it's made of solid gold, rimmed with ermine around the outside. Uh, she is placed on her throne in Westminster Abbey and then she receives what are called homage and fealty from all the noblemen, all the peers and noblemen and princes of the realm bow down before her and offer their lives, not just their loyalty, as with her and acknowledging her as queen and sovereign. It Just reading it felt really impressive, like... This is cool. I wish I could have been there to see that. You know, 1953 predates me by, uh, well, 20 years. Um, But some of you were probably around when it happened. Maybe you saw it on TV. And this was an impressive deal just to watch it. It must have been really amazing to see it in person. And as you contrast that with Jesus, you know, you think, okay, queen of... I mean, it's not even queen in the real sense of being a real monarch with actual power. This is just a constitutional monarchy with decisions that are made by the prime minister. And you get to have the palace, he gets to have the power. But in any case, um, you know, you think, wow, you know, when the Son of God, heir to the throne of David, And the incarnation of the living God who flung the universe into existence at a word. I bet when his coronation happened, it would be an impressive deal. You'd be wrong. Let's read it. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead... Went and found it just as they had been told. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When He came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Now as the story begins, Jesus is about to make his third trip up to Jerusalem. And by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem if you're in the Holy Land. um, Because Jerusalem is located on the top of a hill. And it's the highest hill in the area uh, where it's located. And so you always go up from everywhere around there to it. And so when it says they were going to go up to Jerusalem, they mean that literally, uh, that you go up to get there. And they're outside of Bethany and Bethphage, which are two little villages on the other side of the Kidron Valley, uh, about two miles uh, southeast of Jerusalem and, and on the other side of the Mount of Olives, uh, which is a hill directly east of Jerusalem it's the hill from which Jesus ascended into heaven and from and to which the prophet Zechariah tells us he will return the mount of olives and so Jesus is outside of this outside of these little villages and he tells two of his disciples go up to this village up here and he probably means the village of Bethphage because uh, it's a little further away than Bethany and he says go up to this village and you'll find there a cult Um, which no one has ever ridden. And the idea is is it's something no one has ever ridden because it's then a pure mount. No one has ever been on it before. It's never been saddled. No one has ever ridden it. It's a young animal. And it's also um, something which demonstrates his complete control of the situation. You know, a lot of times people think of Jesus doing what he's doing as somehow a victim of circumstance. Like he got to to Jerusalem, the people were plotting, and they conspire with the Romans, and they put him to death, and it's all kind of, in some sense, a tragic surprise. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, he's in such complete control of the situation that he's able to give his disciples instructions about places he has not been to Tell them what they should say if anyone questions what they are doing. And have that explanation be sufficient to to obtain the animal that he requires. Now, he says, go up to this village and you'll find a colt that nobody's ever ridden. It'll be tied up there. And when you you find the colt, I want you to untie it and bring it to me. If anyone stops you, say, the Lord needs it. And they'll give it to you. Now, this is a weird set of instructions, I think. But nonetheless, the disciples have been with Jesus enough to know if Jesus said this is the way it's going to be, I'll trust Jesus. And so they go on ahead to the village. They find the colt. He's tied up there just like Jesus said he would be. They untie him. And as they're doing that, the owners of the colt come out and ask the very normal natural question, what are you doing? (laughs) This is a valuable animal. Uh, only rich people, by the way. Th- uh, Matthew clarifies that this colt is the, in other words, it's a male animal. It's a colt, and it's the foal of a donkey. Matthew clarifies for us. Um, Luke doesn't add that detail in, but Matthew does. And if you read the two accounts together, you you get a fuller picture of royalty <coughs> when they were coming in peace rode. Donkeys. When they came back from a war, or representing themselves as a warrior, they came on a white stallion. And Jesus is coming in peace, and so he needs a donkey colt. And so that's what he decides to run, ride in on. And this this is an expensive animal. In fact, it's one of the few animals that you had as a Jewish person that you were allowed to redeem, and you didn't have to offer the Lord the firstborn donkey that you had. You could redeem it with a lamb, a less expensive animal. This is a valuable animal. And so the, the people who own it say, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and they say, the Lord needs it. And, and the people immediately say, Okay that's fine and when they bring it back when they bring it back they throw what they have which is their cloaks and the cloak you had an inner garment that was usually uh... had sleeves to it that was kinda like a long nightgown almost uh... well very much like a long nightgown um, you know like those those robes that married women wear you know the, the neck up to here okay um, <laughs> Um, you know, it comes from Moose Jaw, Alaska, you know. Uh go all the way to the all the way to the wristbone and all the way up to the neck, okay? You had the inner thing that you wore, and then the outer part was the uh was your, your cloak, this this outer garment. And and if you were poor, the outer garment was what you slept in. You would take it off at night and you would cover it up and it would be your blanket. Uh, so this is a very important article of clothing, and it's, uh, it's also the thing which identifies you, your cloak, as where you are on the social ladder. People who were wealthy had very nice cloaks. People who were poorer had ones that were not as nice. You could even identify somebody <laughs> racially and ethnically according to what cloak they had on and what, what, what it looked like. Uh, and they lay their cloaks on the back of the animal as like a saddle for Jesus. In other words, we're taking the best that we have and giving it to you as something to sit on. And then they begin to, um, they begin to make this announcement that Jesus has come as Messiah in as public a way as possible. They're giving him the red carpet treatment they start taking off their cloaks and laying them down on the dirt so that the donkey doesn't even have to walk in the mud. He can walk on the best thing that they own. And they're giving him the royal treatment. And again, Matthew tells us uh, that that the people cut palm branches and he started to wave them, and Luke leaves that detail out. But what the important thing to notice here is that They are beginning to make an explicit claim about who Jesus is in the way that they are treating him. They are not keeping quiet anymore. And on top of that, uh, Luke Luke means for us to understand that Jesus is claiming to fulfill the prophet Zechariah from 400 years previous to Jesus. Uh, Zechariah said this, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a messianic act where Jesus is making an explicit claim. He is saying, in effect, I am the one that Zechariah told you about, the one who was to come who would be the king the Messiah, the one you have been waiting for. And some of the people watching this, along with Jesus' disciples, start celebrating because they recognize Jesus' claim as being true. And so they start shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a direct quote from Psalm 118, which is a Messianic psalm describing the coming of God into the people of Israel. Um... They're cutting off palm branches. Luke doesn't tell you that, but Matthew will. Uh, They're cutting off palm branches and waving them. And that's a highly symbolic act also. Because uh, among the feasts that God gave to the nation of Israel, He gave them what was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, you were to take palm branches and other things and build yourself a temporary shelter. Uh, as a commemoration of the fact that God dwelt with you in in a temporary shelter in the desert it's called the tabernacle and that you experienced God's presence in in a tent for 40 years as you were in the desert together and God's presence dwelt among the people in a temporary shelter and it looked forward to a day when God would, and this was the word they used, tabernacle with us again. And so, every year you were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and you would cut palm branches and build yourself a little shack to live in for a week. And so, when the people are cutting palm branches and waving them and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, what they're saying is the promise of the Feast of Tabernacles of a day that would come when God Himself would dwell with us again in person as He did in the desert, it's here. This is the day. This is the guy right here who is riding on this donkey. This is God's presence tabernacling, dwelling among us again. This is it. And so there, I mean, can you imagine what it must be like to see this? You have waited 400 years since Zechariah, 800 years since Isaiah, 1,500 years since Moses celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, looking forward to a prophet like Moses who would come. And he has come, and he's here, and he's riding into Jerusalem right now. And so the people are shouting, and they're proclaiming, this is the Messiah, the Anointed One, who was to come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But... This is not universally accepted. There's a small group of people, Jesus' disciples and a few others. Somebody robbed my bottle of water. (coughs) Um, But there's a small group of disciples that have gathered and and they're celebrating and the people are celebrating because they have seen all of Jesus miracles and Jesus and now making this explicit claim is drawing it in for him and saying look here you've seen the miracles now I am telling you explicitly I am the guy and they say it must be true we have seen what all he has done we have seen how he has acted and lived and taught spoke he is the messiah and they celebrate but there's always a pooper at every party, right? That's why we invited you, right? And, um, um, and the Pharisees are there, and the Pharisees are these, these, they're the villain in the, in the New Testament because they stand in Jesus' way. But these are religious, pious guys. They are the ones, by the way, from whom modern-day Orthodox Judaism is descended in direct line, the Pharisees. They're religious, pious people. Jim, God bless you. Hey, thank you. Uh, All right, now I won't choke to death up here. All right. Uh, They're the ones that the Orthodox Jews trace their heritage from. They're concerned for two reasons. Number one, they're concerned about the people's statements about Jesus. They're veering awfully close to recognizing Jesus as God come in the flesh. And the Pharisees believe that they know that that can't be. I mean, after all, surely God wouldn't be born to a woman who wasn't married to her husband at the time that the baby was conceived, right? And surely when God came, He wouldn't be the adopted son of a carpenter in Gentile-dominated Nazareth in Galilee. I mean, surely God wouldn't do that. That would be just totally out of character for who they believed God to be. And on top of that, Jesus is claiming royal prerogatives. That's why he's riding on the donkey. He's claiming to be the son of David, the king who was to come. And that's a problem because Judea already has a king. You may have heard of him. His name is Caesar. And when you have a person claiming to be king, when there is a king, what you call that is a rebellion, and an insurrection. And they're afraid that the Romans are going to come in and destroy them and their civilization because they're anointing this man king when they already have one. And Jesus says, look, this is fulfillment of prophecy And if these people don't cry out the way that they should in recognition of me as Messiah, then the very stones will cry out. Jesus is God, and this event is happening in accordance with his perfect plan and will. An inanimate creation recognizes Jesus for who he is, because he's the creator come in the flesh. And they, and the rocks can recognize their sovereign, but the religious leaders who should have been much closer to God could not recognize God when he is staring them in the face. And he's giving them complete evidence of who he is in all the miracles that he does. He gives them evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence of who he is, and they still can't recognize him. There is no one so blind as the one who refuses to see. And the the Pharisees refuse to see who Jesus is. And he says, look, if you don't acknowledge me, and these people don't acknowledge me, then the rocks will cry out. Because they, even the rocks, which don't possess a brain, can recognize me as who I am. And you can't. And what does that say about you? And then Jesus, as Jesus gets near Jerusalem, the processional just sort of dwindles away. And the Pharisees get what they hoped for, which is the rejection of Jesus as Messiah and as King. Because it, and, and they hoped for that because it really was as radical a claim as they feared that it was. But they missed the fulfillment of the thing they most earnestly wanted to see. Their whole religion and belief system points to the coming of a day when Messiah shows up. And here he is in their midst and they miss it. And so Jesus weeps for the city that has rejected him. And as you read the text, it 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 doesn't maybe make clear what's really happening. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The Greek word there for wept is not the idea of he got tears right here in the corners of his eyes and they kind of, you know, pooled and then kind of trickled down his face. That is not the idea. This is Eastern people style weeping. This is wailing and lots of tears and sobbing. This is, I smashed my fingers in the car door crying. Okay? Deep pain. Jesus is in deep pain over the city. And I want you to see that because this is not just a sort of, oh boy, it's too bad. This is wrenching to Jesus because he knows what the alternative is. And the alternative to having Jesus as king is having Rome as king. And having Rome as king is going to be a disaster. Listen to what uh, the New Testament scholar uh, Daryl Bach has to say. It says this, The price for missing the Messiah's visitation is the dark visit of another potentate, one from Rome. The destruction will be total. Ironically, the nation's charge against Jesus is that he is a political threat to Rome. His opponents argue that if Jesus is allowed to run his course, he will be perceived as a physical threat and Rome might overrun the nation. But defeat comes in spite of Jesus. It comes because of their rejection. The thing they most feared, which is the destruction of their nation, if they embrace Jesus, is going to come not because they embraced Jesus, but because they rejected him. And so Jesus prophesies and says that the city will be destroyed. They're going to build embankments up against you and surround you on all sides. He's talking about Roman-style siege warfare. How many of you have seen The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, right? Right? last one siege warfare battering rams the whole deal that's what the romans are going to do and that it comes in 70 a.d and jesus says they will not leave one stone on another which is true they tore down the city walls burned the city they burned the temple and because the temple was inlaid on the inside with gold Uh, This fire got so hot that the gold actually melted off of the inside of the stone walls. And they pried apart the rocks to get at the gold that had melted down in between them. And they did not leave one stone on another. All that is left of the temple today is the western wall. It's kind of the supporting wall that the temple set on top of. They did not leave one stone on another. Why did that happen? Because of the rejection of Jesus. It brings the destruction that the people and the Pharisees most fear. They know they're a weak nation, one that can't stand against the world power of Rome. And so they reject Jesus as king and get instead an evil king who destroys them. The people will not have peace because they have rejected the Prince of Peace. Now look with me at verses 45 to 48 here, this last section, where Jesus begins to initiate and to give a a preview of the judgment that is coming on the nation for their sin. He goes into the temple area and begins driving out those who were selling. Now that's that's not maybe as clear as it could be. Matthew says he made a whip of cords and goes in there and starts whacking people. He doesn't say it quite like that. But that's the, that's the general idea. He takes some ropes, knots the ends, and starts lashing everybody who's in there selling. Why is what they're doing a problem? Well, for number one, they're doing it in the area where Gentiles, people who look like you and I, could come into the temple and worship and meet the living God. And number two, you were not to carry on commerce in the temple area. And what they have done is they have set up this marketplace where you can buy yourself a lamb that you can then sacrifice. We've got a special deal on lambs today. Okay. And then what they've also done is they have set it up in such a way that you have to have a special temple-approved coin to use to buy the lambs with. And And since you won't have any of those, you have to exchange what you have for our special temple coins, and we get to charge you the exchange rate special deal on those and they're extorting, in a sense, people out of their money for the privilege of being able to worship God under their supervision. Now, that's wicked. And on top of that, it is a total universe away from where God's heart is for the temple. The reason He told them, build a court for the Gentiles so that they can come to worship, was so that the Gentiles would have a place to come and worship. And they have turned it instead into uh, an ex- an, a place of monetary exchange and the selling of animals back and forth and extorting people out of their money so that they can worship God in a, when God meant for that to be free. And so Jesus goes in and starts driving those guys out. He's throwing over tables. He's knocking over uh, all the piles of people's cash registers and money. Crates are breaking open. I mean, he's tearing the place up. And by the way, there are temple guards in this place who are armed. And none of them do anything. Jesus was, a, you know, Jesus is not that bearded lady he gets depicted as in art Sometimes. Okay, kind of long hair, kind of real feminine features, kind of sissified. This is uh, ultimate fighter Jesus going in and whipping people, overturning tables, knocking stuff over, and saying, like a prophet, the Lord said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it into a robber's den. Shame on you. And he drives them out. And it's a judgment on the people. And because of this, the people the, the, the people in charge, the chief priests and the religious leaders of the nation, say, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's a problem. He's a political risk to us, and he's a religious risk to us, and he's cut off our source of financing. So we've got to get rid of him. And the people, at this point, are still all with Jesus, and so they can't find a way to arrest him. Next week, we'll find out what happens to Jesus. But let me put before you this as we we close the sermon here and move on to taking communion together. The people had a choice that was real simple. They could either accept Jesus as king or reject him and face destruction. And you know what? The same choice faces every human being. You can either have Jesus as king And give up your life in service to him as your sovereign. Or you can reject Jesus as king. Try to save your life, as Jesus said. And maintain your own ability to be your sovereign. And face destruction for all eternity. Separated from God in hell. And he who wants to save his life will lose it, Jesus says. But he who loses his life for my sake will save it. You've only got two choices. Either accept Jesus as king, acknowledge him for who he truly is, recognize his identity, or reject Jesus and face judgment. Judgment, by the way, that makes the destruction of Jerusalem as total as it was, Look like a Sunday school picnic in comparison. Every person has the same choice. Has the same choice as these people faces you and I. And if you have never come to the place where you have, in your heart of hearts, acknowledged Jesus as King over your life, over your choices, over your body, over your mind, over your tongue, and received him as the one who is righteous and has salvation that he brings with him i encourage you to do that today the scripture says today if you hear if you hear his voice do not harden your heart accept jesus as your king let's pray